Chapter 17, A History of California, the American Period, by Robert Glass Cleland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17, The Gold Rush. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, by which California formally became a part of the United States, was signed February 2, 1848. Two weeks before, in one of the innumerable canyons of the Sierra Nevada, a man named James W. Marshall chanced upon some glittering particles in the tail race of a sawmill belonging to his employer, John A. Sutter. Before the ink was scarcely dry on the treaty, the news of Marshall's discovery had begun to set an eager world in ferment and change the whole course of California history. Footnote. Marshall's discovery occurred January 24th. The following extract from the diary of Azariah Smith, one of the laborers at Sutter's Mill, gives this interesting contemporary account to the event. Quote, Sunday, January 30th. Mr. Marshall having arrived, we got liberty of him and built a small house down by the mill, and last Sunday we moved into it in order to get rid of the brawlings, partial mistress, and cook for ourselves. This week Mr. Marshall found some pieces of, as we all suppose, gold, and he has gone to the fort for the purpose of finding out. It is found in the raceway and small pieces. Some have been found that would weigh five dollars, in footnote. Gold had been found in California long before Marshall gathered it out of the tail race of the mill on the south fork of the American River. Seven years before, in the Santa Feliciana Canyon of the San Fernando Hills back of Los Angeles, Francisco Lopez, a native Californian, came upon traces of the metal as he was digging up wild onions in the shade of an oak tree under which he had stopped to rest. This discovery led to much excitement in the southern part of the province, and even brought a considerable number of prospectors from Sonora, Mexico, to the newly opened field. In spite of lack of water, these San Fernando deposits were worked successfully for a number of years, yielding some four or five thousand dollars annually in gold dust and small nuggets. Mines of other metals, notably the exceptionally rich quicksilver deposits of New Almaden, where the mercury was first obtained by heating the ore in gun barrels, were also in operation before 1848. But until Marshall's accidental discovery, the great treasure of the California mountains remained unsuspected by foreign visitor and native resident alike. Considering all the circumstances, this is one of the strangest facts in California history. The Spaniards who conquered Mexico were among the most indefatigable miners the world has ever seen. For more than two centuries after the landing of Cortes, the history of New Spain was largely the history of men interested in the saving of precious souls or of men interested in the discovery of precious metals. From Mexico City northward to Nuevo León in Chihuahua, westward to the Pacific, northward to Sonora, New Mexico and Arizona, the conquistadores and their descendants prospected for gold and silver, joined in the hectic excitement of one mining rush after another, and exploited a thousand rich deposits discovered by their industry and their never-failing zeal. Why these same people, so successful and zealous as miners in Mexico, failed to find the vast treasures of the Sierra Nevada, which nature made almost no attempt to conceal, will always remain a curious problem. The effect of the discovery of gold upon California's destiny, if this had happened under Spanish or Mexican rule, has already been pointed out by one of the most authoritative of the state's historians, 
assuredly it was the whim of fate or the hand of a guiding providence that delayed this discovery until the territory had come into the possession of the united states when marshall and sutter became convinced that the bits of yellow metal which remained in the tail race were actually gold they agreed together to keep the matter secret not so much apparently because they wished to preempt the deposit as because they feared the mining craze might carry off the needed laborers from sutter's wheat fields mills and numerous other undertakings to cover up such a discovery for any length of time was difficult yet for nearly six weeks few people outside those at the mill knew of its event inevitably however the secret at last became public teamsters coming in from the outside heard of the find and carried the news back to the coast mormon immigrants many of whom worked for sutter spread the report among their co-religionists and sutter's own agent sent to monterey to obtain a grant or patent to the mining rights told nearly everything he knew about the discovery at monterey on may twenty ninth walter colton the american alcalde made this entry in his diary quote, our town was startled out of its quiet dreams today by the announcement that gold had been discovered on the american fork the men wondered and talked and the women too but neither believed the sibyls were less skeptical they said that the moon had for several nights appeared not more than a cable's length from the earth that a white ram had been seen playing with an infant and that an owl had rung the church bells on june twentieth after several other reports had been received and the alcalde himself had dispatched a special investigator to the gold region this entry was made in the same diary showing how great an effect the excitement was already having upon the normal life of monterey quote, my messenger has returned with specimens of gold he dismounted in a sea of upturned faces as he drew forth the yellow lumps from his pockets and passed them around among the eager crowd the doubts which had lingered till now fled the excitement produced was intense and many were soon busy in their hasty preparations for a departure to the mines the family who had kept house for me caught the moving infection husband and wife were both packing up the blacksmith dropped his hammer the carpenter is plain the mason his trowel the farmer his sickle the baker his loaf and the tapster his bottle all were off for the mines some on horses some on carts and some on crutches and one went in a litter an american woman who had recently established a boarding-house here pulled up stakes and went off before her lodgers had even time to pay their bills debtors ran of course i have only a community of women left and a gang of prisoners with here and there a soldier who will give his captain the slip at the first chance on june twenty eighth thomas o'larkin still serving in his consular capacity wrote to buchanan three-fourths of the houses in the town on the bay of san francisco are deserted houses are sold at the price of building lots the effects are this week showing themselves in monterey almost every house i had hired out is given up every blacksmith carpenter and lawyer is leaving brickyards sawmills ranches are left perfectly alone a large number of the volunteers at san francisco and sonoma have deserted public and private vessels are losing their crews both of our newspapers are discontinued from want of workmen and the loss of their agencies the alcaldes have left san francisco and i believe sonoma likewise the former place has not a justice of the peace left governor mason 
who made a tour of the mines about the time Larkin's letter was written, along the whole route found mills lying idle, houses deserted, fields of standing wheat turned open to cattle, and farms left uncultivated. Ships were deserted as fast as they arrived on the coast. Soldiers left their garrisons, and men closed their shops. Until, without serious exaggeration, one writer could say, quote, The whole country is now moving on to the mines. Monterey, San Francisco, Sonoma, San Jose, and Santa Cruz are emptied of their male population. Every bowl, tray, warming pan, and pigeon is gone to the mines. Everything, in short, that has a scoop in it that will hold sand and water. All the iron has been worked up into crowbars, pickaxes, and spades. This wholesale stampede from the coast to the mining regions is not to be wondered at. In those first exciting days, especially before the great influx of 1849, gold awaited every comer. Stream beds, hillsides, and rock crevices all alike yielded treasure. Two men in seven days obtained $17,000 from a trench a few feet wide and a hundred feet long. A soldier on twenty days' furlough, who spent half his time going to and from the mines, made $1,500 in ten days of actual mining. Seven Americans, with the aid of fifty Indians, whom they paid presumably in cheap merchandise, took out 275 pounds of gold in a little more than six weeks. Ten men made $1,500 each in ten days. A single miner obtained two pounds and a half of gold in 15 minutes. A group of Mexicans were seen gambling with a 100 pounds of gold dust and nuggets serving as the bank. In less than half an hour, a man picked up between five and six ounces of gold out of an open hole in the rock, as fast as one can pick the kernels out of a lot of well-cracked shellbarks. A rancher named Sinclair, employing Indians as helpers, cleaned up 14 pounds, average poids, not troy, in a week's time. On a tour of the mines, the editor of the Californian, which had recently been established at Monterey, averaged $100 a day using only a shovel, pick, and pan. The striking thing about the mining industry, as it was carried on for the first few months, however, was not the lucky finds of a few, but the assured profit for practically everyone who engaged in it. The average return was from $10 to $50 a day, and by August it was reliably estimated that $600,000 had been secured from the various diggings. Authoritative news of the phenomenal discovery reached the states in time for President Polk to comment upon it in his December message to Congress. But sometime before this official announcement, the eastern newspapers were full of rumors and reports about the California gold fields, which the public generally accepted with tolerant incredulity. When at last, however, people ceased to doubt and began to believe, such excitement followed as a nation had never known before or will ever know of its kind again. By the close of 1848, every city, large or small, from the frontiers of Missouri to the Atlantic seaboard, was affected by the California fever. Men were selling out of their business, families were breaking up their homes, officials were resigning their positions, and professional men were getting rid of their practice. Literally scores of companies and associations were being formed by persons planning to make the trip to California. Many of these were organized on a cooperative basis, each member contributing a certain share to the common expense and enjoying equal rights with his fellow members. 
Other companies were financed by persons themselves unable to make the journey, but who wished to share in the fabulous wealth that every letter and returned traveler reported from the California fields. Thus, there was a Sag Harbor California Mining Association, the Boston and California Mining and Trading Joint Stock Company, with Edward Everett as its patron, the New York Yellow Fever Mining Company, the Manhattan California Overland Association, the Congress and California Mutual Protective Association, and no one knows how many other companies of the same kind. Yet few, if any of these innumerable associations, were able to stand the strain of the passage to California or of the new environment their members found in the mining camps. Too often, friendships or mutual agreements formed in an atmosphere where social and business relations followed a well-defined code were wrenched apart and hopelessly broken by the new conditions of life in California. Naturally enough, the newspaper seized upon the gold excitement with the greatest avidity. Letters, reports, and rumors from California were eagerly sought after and given first place in the news columns. Fortunately, no matter how great the exaggeration in these articles, the actual production of the fields in nearly every case surpassed the imagination of the writer, and fiction again lagged after truth. The reports from California that appeared in the newspapers were also supplemented by many by-products of the craze. Footnote. About this time, Mrs. Elizabeth Farnham, widow of the well-known author-traveler Thomas Jefferson Farnham, who had died in San Francisco in 1848, was seeking to organize a party of 130 women in New York to go to the coast, in company with six or eight respectable married men and their families, to become the wives of bachelor miners. None of the party were to be under 25 years of age, and each was to furnish $250 as expense money for the trip. In footnote. There were advertisements of businesses for sale, because the owners were leaving to search for gold. There were descriptions of the various overland routes to California, and lists of stout and trustworthy vessels about to sail for San Francisco. Notices of gold dust receipts at Atlantic ports stood side by side with accounts of villains who had abandoned wives and families for the mines. A single issue of the New York Herald contained over 40 advertisements designed to interest buyers about to leave for California. Among the articles advertised were an acid and test stone appliance for detecting gold, Hunt's patent gold extracting engine, Bruce's hydrocentrifugal chrysolite, or California Gold Finder, and other essentials of similar character. Lamps guaranteed against upsetting were advertised on the same page with books for pleasant reading on shipboard. Mining treatises, Spanish grammars, and guidebooks for the route were almost as numerous as Buena Vista rifles, pistol belts, and holsters. Who is for California? A company in the process of organization challenged and in the next column, a physician offered his services to a party bound for the Pacific coast. The New York Washing and Mining Association advertised for recruits, and another enterprising company sought a housekeeper for its California hotel. Preserved meats, soups, spiced oysters, and sauerkraut put up in canisters and warranted for 21 years, saddles, guns, tents, assaying outfits, blankets, India rubber goods, Dana's system of mineralogy and California overcoats were all brought to the attention of the prospective miner. 
he was implored to buy a copy of the Crom Thermal System of Medicine, since fully half the miners of California were down with fever, and to have his daguerreotype taken as a farewell remembrance for the dear ones who remained behind. About the only items omitted from the list were coffins and nursing bottles. There is no way of determining, even with a fair degree of accuracy, how many persons came to California from the rest of the United States in the years immediately following the discovery of gold. The migration, however, was so stupendous as to outrank in point of numbers anything of its kind in the nation's history, and to stand on an equal footing with some of the great world movements of population. The whole country, it seemed, was singing the doggerel verse of one of the Argonauts, and thousands upon thousands were actually putting it into practice. Quote, oh, California, that's the land for me. I'm bound for the Sacramento with a washbowl on my knee. End quote. Throughout the winter, the overland routes were closed to travel, so the earliest influx came by sea. During the first week of February, 1849, 50 vessels sailed from American ports for San Francisco. By the middle of March, 17,000 persons had taken passage from cities on the Gulf and Atlantic coasts, and before the year closed, 230 American vessels reached California harbors. The overland migration, when it began, was even larger than that which came by sea. Within three weeks, during the spring of 1849, nearly 18,000 persons crossed the Missouri River for California. A single observer counted 1,100 wagons on the prairies beyond Independence. From the Missouri frontier to Fort Laramie, the procession of emigrants passed in an unbroken stream for more than two months toward the west. By day, this long train of wagons and other vehicles, for they were of all types and descriptions, the herds of animals and the crowds of men, women, and children, gave the impression of a whole nation on the move. At night, the glow of innumerable campfires on the prairies shone like the lights of populous cities. Fully 35,000 people took part in this great overland movement of 1849, a year that rightly occupies a unique place in California and national annals. The chief sea routes to California were by way of Cape Horn and the Isthmus of Panama. The former, made as it was at first chiefly by sailing vessels, for steam navigation was still in its infancy, required from six to nine months, a much longer time than impatient gold seekers could afford to give, and was characterized by no little danger and hardship. Just before the gold rush began, however, William H. Aspinall had organized the Pacific Mail Steamship Company and started the construction of three small steamers, of about a thousand tons each, to run from New York to San Francisco. The first of these, the California, left New York on October 6, 1848, shortly before Marshall's discovery became known. When the vessel reached Panama on January 30, 1849, hundreds of gold seekers who had come by sea to the Isthmus and crossed overland to the Pacific were waiting almost in a frenzy for passage to San Francisco. Some 400 of these were taken on board to find accommodations as best they could in a vessel designed for only a hundred passengers. Many of these paid as high as a thousand dollars for a steerage ticket from Panama to California. The California reached San Francisco on February 28th, the first of a long line of transports laden to the water's edge with New World Argonauts. 
those who reached California by the Panama route, had much to try physical endurance and test their patience. The voyage from New York to Chagres, on the Caribbean side of the Isthmus, required about two weeks' time and cost from $80 to $150. If the passage could be obtained in a satisfactory ship, this portion of the trip might well prove delightful. But as the number of seaworthy vessels was wholly inadequate to supply the demand, every sort of sailing craft was pressed into service, and even if the vessel escaped foundering in mid-ocean, the passengers were sure to suffer every form of discomfort and annoyance to which travelers are heir. From Chagres, the first stage of the journey across the Isthmus was made by native canoe to the head of the Chagres River, and thence by pack train to the Pacific. The canoes were twenty or twenty-five feet long, carried ten or twelve passengers besides the five or six Indians who pulled them, and made about a mile an hour, when the natives bestirred themselves. Tropical storms, heat, bad drinking water, and voracious insects added to the pleasure of the voyage. But while these things, coupled even with the delay and squalor of the native huts where the immigrants were often forced to lodge, could be endured, there were two grim enemies that brought death instead of mere discomfort. These were Asiatic cholera and the Chagres fever. When the coast was reached, another long wait was in store for the Californians. Frequently, weeks passed before a passage could be secured to San Francisco. The old city of Panama, witness of so much tragedy and heroic undertaking from the time of Balboa onward, surely never saw stranger sights than in those bustling days of 49, when the Americans poured down from the crest of the mountains on foot or on muleback to wait the arrival of some long-expected vessel to carry them on to the land of El Dorado. For two years, the newcomers virtually took possession of the city. Some of the more enterprising set up hotels and opened shops to cater to the needs of their companions. Footnote. One of the most successful of these immigrant merchants was Collis B. Huntington, of later railroad fame. In footnote. Others of different taste even started a newspaper, which outlasted the mushroom community that gave it birth. Many of the more impatient immigrants chartered small sailboats and bravely set out for California without waiting for the larger vessels. And it is even said that some companies, more adventurous or ignorant than the rest, actually sought to make the 5,000-mile journey from Panama to San Francisco in log canoes. With the adventures, hardships, and tragedies of these irregular expeditions, there's no space to deal. But what fine gold still remains in the tailings of California history. Besides the way around South America and across Panama or Nicaragua, there were half a dozen combination routes to California involving both an overland journey and an ocean voyage. Many of the immigrants sailed from New York or New Orleans to Veracruz, traveling thence by way of Mexico City and Guadalajara to take ship on the Pacific at Acapulco or San Blas. Others landed at Tempico and made the trip across Mexico by way of a more northern route to the harbors of Mazatlan and Guaymas on the Gulf. Still others crossed the Isthmus of Tehuantepec, hoping to find a vessel at Salina Cruz to carry them on to California. At least one thing was common to all these various routes. Whichever he chose, the gold seeker was sure to encounter hardships in numerous and terrifying forms. 
Sometimes disease carried off his companions, one after another, around him. Sometimes an accidental gunshot or willful murder threw the shadow of death over a little camp. Again, brigands might strip the company of all its ready money and supplies. Or, failing these misfortunes, there were always cold, flood, thirst, desert heat, and scarcity of food to be reckoned with on the overland portion of the expedition. And on the sea, danger from storm, failure of the ship's stores, shortage of water, and sudden attack of the Black Plague cholera. A few companies were entirely blotted out by some unknown catastrophe and never heard from again. Others escaped similar disaster by grim perseverance or merely the whim of a kindlier fate. In addition to the various sea or sea and land routes to California, there were also several principal overland trails supplemented by many cut-offs or diversions from the main routes. The most traveled of these overland routes was the old historic path of the fur trader and the early emigrant along the Platte, up to Sweetwater, through the South Pass, to Bear River and Fort Hall. Thence, most of the caravans turned south to the Mormon settlement at Salt Lake, entering California by way of the Humboldt and Truckee Rivers. Others took the trail to Oregon, reaching the Sacramento by the Willamette and Shasta route. Still others, after reaching the Sierra, followed along the eastern slope through the Owens Valley till Walker Pass, or perhaps to Hatchapi, furnished a gateway to the San Joaquin. From Salt Lake, others took the recently opened Mormon Trail to San Bernardino, a route the Los Angeles-Salt Lake branch of the Union Pacific now closely parallels. Another main highway of the gold seekers reached California by way of Santa Fe. From Missouri to New Mexico, this route had long been known through the agency of the St. Louis-Santa Fe trade. From Santa Fe westward, there was a choice of two routes. One, the old Pati Trail, ran through Socorro and along the Gila to the Colorado, thence crossing to the coast by way of Warner's Ranch. The second, following Wolfskill's path of the early 30s and the route of the old Santa Fe-Los Angeles caravans, reached the Colorado by way of the Grand, Green, Sevier, and Virgin Rivers. From the Colorado, the trail continued on to Southern California by way of the Cajon or east of the Cajon, turned northward to the San Joaquin by either the Tehachapi or Tejon Pass. Still another route from Santa Fe ran directly south to Chihuahua and Old Mexico. Thence, one of the long-used Spanish trails carried the emigrant across the mountains into Sonora and eventually brought him by way of Altar and Tubac to the regular Gila River Trail over which he traveled to the Colorado. The magnitude of the migrations over these various overland routes cannot adequately be described. Men, women, and children took part in it, for the movement, at least from the frontier states, was not merely the rush of men excited by tales of wealth to a land where they expected to make but a temporary residence. It was the transplanting of a population, the migration of families to find a new and permanent home. Much of the so-called Great Migration was indeed merely a new phase of that overland movement that had begun in 1841 with the arrival of the Bidwell Party, and had already assumed very considerable proportions a number of years before the discovery of gold. Many parties, of course, even from western communities, were made up entirely of men. But in the typical overland company, the unit was the family rather than the individual. 
Nearly every wagon carried furniture and household goods for the new home on the Pacific. The westerner who started, well, let us say, from independence in the spring of 1849 for the gold fields of California, looked upon the undertaking as nothing unusual except perhaps for the distance involved. His whole previous life had been spent in just such migrations on a smaller scale. Kentucky, Indiana, Illinois, and finally Missouri each in turn had witnessed the erection of his crude log cabin, evidence of the sure approach of civilization, and had claimed him for a temporary citizen. By 1849, this nomadic settler was ready for the final move to California. The ordinary means of travel employed by the emigrants was the familiar prairie schooner, probably first made use of in the Santa Fe trade. These were usually drawn by three or four yoke of oxen, though sometimes horses or mules were used instead. Generally, a number of cows were also driven along to furnish a reserve supply of food or to serve as substitutes for broken down or lost oxen. While this was the typical equipment, many of the immigrants had vehicles of other types or employed pack animals alone. Some, indeed, were foolish enough to attempt the journey with wheelbarrows and pushcarts. Besides supplies of food, coffee, sugar, bacon, dried apples, and the like, every well-to-do company took with it a large amount of bedding, many cooking utensils, guns, axes, and even heavy household furniture, such as bedsteads, tables, and bureaus, or equally heavy farming implements and mining tools. The organization of most companies was similar to that adopted by the earlier immigrants of the Bidwell-Donner type, and their method of travel in no material way differed from that of their predecessors. The large number of animals passing over well-established routes furnished a more serious problem in the matter of forage, however, than the pre-49ers had been forced to meet, and this often compelled companies to seek less frequented trails where grass was more abundant. Indian difficulties were few during the first years of the gold rush, but every other trouble was met with in abundance. Cholera ravaged many of the trains, in some cases wiping out entire families. Other diseases, such as scurvy, likewise took heavy toll, and death by accident was also a frequent occurrence. Often a company's animals gave out, or ran off, and in crossing rivers, wagons, animals, and men alike were sometimes swept away by flood or sucked down by quicksand. Crime, even of the basest sort, was not unknown. But more commonly, where violence was done, it was due to some outburst of sudden anger or resulted from nerves frayed beyond the breaking point by long-continued anxiety and strain. On the northern route, the most difficult part of the journey lay beyond Fort Hall. Between Salt Lake and the Sierra, the line of travel was marked. More plainly than ever, a modern boulevard was posted by enterprising automobile clubs, with broken-down wagons, abandoned equipment, dead animals, and bleaching bones. A single entry in the diary of James Abbey, himself one of the 49ers, shows better than all the second-hand descriptions that have ever been written what the toll was paid on this portion of the route west of the Humboldt Sink. Quote, August 2nd. Started out by four o'clock this morning, at six, stopped to cook our breakfast and lighten our wagons by throwing away the heavier portions of our clothing and such other articles as we can best spare. We pushed on today with as much speed as possible to get through the desert, 
but our cattle gave such evident signs of exhaustion that we were compelled to stop. The desert through which we are passing is strewn with dead cattle, mules, and horses. I counted, in a distance of fifteen miles, three hundred and fifty dead horses, two hundred and eighty oxen, one hundred and twenty mules, and hundreds of others are left behind, unable to keep up. A tan yard or slaughterhouse is a flower garden in comparison. A train from Missouri have today shot twenty oxen. Vast amounts of valuable property have been abandoned and thrown away in this desert. Leather trunks, clothing, wagons, etc., to the value of at least a hundred thousand dollars in about twenty miles. I have counted in the last ten miles three hundred and sixty two wagons, which in the States cost about a hundred and twenty dollars apiece. End quote. With Abbey's description as a background, one's imagination can picture something of the distress and suffering endured by the immigrants who came the northern route. Yet those who took the Gila Trail were equally unfortunate. John W. Audubon, son of the famous ornithologist and a naturalist of no mean ability himself, found the road east of Colorado garnished almost every league with dead cattle, horses, or oxen. Every camping place was littered with wagons, implements, and personal effects thrown away by the passing trains. The worst stretch of this route, however, lay through the Colorado desert west of the Yuma villages. Here, at the so-called lagoons, Audubon, who had traveled by the route across northern Mexico, came upon a scene of desolation more fearful than anything he had previously seen in all his arduous journey. He describes it thus, quote, Broken wagons, dead, shriveled-up cattle, horses and mules as well, lay baking in the sun, around the dried-up wells that had been opened in the hopes of getting water. Not a blade of grass or green thing of any kind relieved the monotony of the parched, ash-colored earth, and the most melancholy scene presented itself that I had ever seen since I left the Rio Grande. End quote. Travel, even over the well-established routes to California, was thus beset with hardship during the period of the gold rush. But where parties turned off to seek new trails, fate dealt with them even more relentlessly. The most tragic of such cases occurred in that grim region lying east of Owens River, which ever since has borne the name of Death Valley. Two companies, at least, were caught in this waste of sand and desolation during the migration of 1849, and the valley dealt with them in pitiless fashion. The story of the first of these parties has been left us by William Lewis Manley, one of its members. His company, having reached Green River by way of the South Pass, attempted the impossible feat of going down the Colorado in an old ferry boat. They succeeded in getting somewhat beyond the spot where Ashley had painted his name on the canyon walls in 1824, but at last were compelled to abandon the river and strike out on foot toward the west. Without serious difficulty, they reached the regular Salt Lake-Los Angeles Trail, where they found a large number of wagons bound for California. Manley and his associates joined this company of emigrants, but instead of following the regular route to the Mojave villages, a part of the train, led by Captain Smith, turned off near Mountain Meadows, intending to travel directly west to the San Joaquin. Manley and a friend of his named Bennett, who was in command of several wagons, together with one of the Green River adventurers known as Rogers, followed Smith's party. Before the desert was reached, several of the company turned back to the regular Los Angeles Trail. The rest split into two divisions. 
one of these calling themselves the jayhawkers and composed almost entirely of unmarried men set off ahead leaving the men with women and children to get on as best they could before this main company had proceeded very far the outlook became alarming and when they at last entered the sandy wastes of death valley it was seen that help must be secured or the entire party would perish manley and rogers volunteered to go for aid and with such provisions as could be spared set out for the california settlements of the privations experienced by manley and rogers on this trip or of the sufferings endured by the thirteen grown persons and seven children who remained behind the writer is not competent to speak it is enough to say that the two messengers after conquering starvation sand fatigue and thirst at last reached the little town of san fernando a few miles north of los angeles where they obtained supplies and a few pack animals and then set out again for the valley of death to rescue their companions when the two came again within sight of the camp which they had left twenty-six days before some of the wagons were missing and there was no sign of life about a few miles back they had already passed one member of the company dead on the sand with his arms extended wide in this little canteen made of two powder flasks lying by his side it was doubtful whether any of the company which they had risked so much to rescue had survived manley fired off his gun a man came out from under a wagon looked all around without seeing anyone Quote, then to use manley's words he threw up his arms high over his head and shouted the boys have come the boys have come the great suspense was over and our hearts were first in our mouths and then the blood all went away and left us almost fainting as we stood and tried to step bennett and arcane caught us in their arms and embraced us with all their strength and mrs bennett when she came fell down on her knees and clung to me like a maniac in the great emotion that came to her and not a word was spoken unquote. the story of the final escape of the party though certainly not the least heroic in the annals of the westward movement cannot be given here once out of death valley the route lay along the eastern slope of the sierra past walker's pass through red rock canyon across the mojave through soledad canyon and on to san fernando the salt lake trail near mountain meadows was left on november fourth eighteen forty nine the survivors reached the plenty and safety of the California settlements, March 7, 1850. As for the Jayhawkers and the few other members on the train who had separated from the Bennett-Manley party, their story is also one of tragedy and suffering. Small groups became detached from the main company and sought to make their own way across the valley. One of these parties, consisting of 11 members, remained unheard of for many years. Two of its number were afterwards found working in the gold mines of Northern California, and in 1856 a prospecting expedition in Death Valley came upon an abandoned camp around which were the skeletons of nine men. In addition to these victims, at least two more of the Jayhawkers died in the valley, and one succumbed while crossing the Mojave Desert. Traveling sometimes with and sometimes apart from the Jayhawkers was a clergyman named Briar, his wife, and three small children, the oldest of whom was nine. Like the noble women of the Donner Party, Mrs. Breyer proved a constant source of inspiration and courage to her companions, and in the many stories of California heroism, none deserves a higher place than hers. 
Many years after the expedition, she was induced to tell something of her experiences. The following brief extract is taken from that narrative. Quote, the valley ended in a canyon with great walls rising up almost as high as we could see. There seemed no way out, for it ended almost in a straight wall. Father Fish died that night. I made coffee for him, but he was all worn out. Isham died that night, too. It was always the same, hunger and thirst and an awful silence. In the morning, the men returned with the same story. No water. Even the stoutest heart sank then, for nothing but sagebrush and dagger trees greeted the eye. My husband tied little Kirk to his back and staggered ahead. The child would murmur occasionally, Oh, father, where's the water? His pitiful, delirious wails were worse to hear than the killing thirst. It was terrible. I seemed to see it all over again. I staggered and struggled wearily behind our other two boys and the oxen. The little fellows bore up bravely and hardly complained, though they could barely talk, so dry and swollen were their lips and tongue. John would try to cheer up his brother Kirk by telling him of the wonderful water we would find and all the good things we would get to eat. Every step I expected to sink down and die. I could hardly see. That any of the California immigrants who entered Death Valley in 1849 emerged from it alive was due to the cooler weather of the winter months and the kindness of fate. Not even the latter could have saved them if they had sought to cross in the heat of midsummer. Such miracles are not performed when the thermometer stands at 140 degrees in a valley below the level of the sea, where all but 1% of the moisture has been sucked from the atmosphere, and where men go insane if deprived of water for so much as an hour. The Death Valley tragedy occupies a unique place in the annals of the 49ers because of the horrors connected with it. Yet a fate scarcely less terrible, but of a different nature, was narrowly averted in the case of thousands of immigrants who left Salt Lake toward the close of summer or early in the fall, intending to cross the Sierra before snow closed the passes. These latecomers found the grass along the route almost used up by earlier trains. Water was scarce and so unfit to drink that beasts and men alike were made sick by it. In places, the road was so cut up by constant use that clouds of alkali dust enveloped every wagon, making travel difficult and slow. Cholera and scurvy attacked many of the companies, and exhaustion from the long journey and lack of food reduced others to a condition of despair. The chief danger, however, was the coming of winter. If this should set in before the worn-out emigrants were safely through the mountains, the tragedies of Donner Lake and Death Valley would be multiplied a hundredfold. Fortunately, as early as August, this danger was realized by General Persifor H. Smith, who had recently arrived by way of Panama to take charge of the United States forces in California. And in conjunction with Governor Riley, he dispatched a few relief trains across the Sierra to aid the stragglers to get through. As the season grew later, Reports reached the cities and mining communities of California that thousands of emigrants still east of the mountains were in desperate straits, and unless help were sent, would perish before they could reach a place of safety. Lack of food had driven many of them, with disastrous results, to eat the putrefying flesh of oxen or mules that had died along the way. Others had lost all their animals from disease, 
or at the hands of the Indians, who were now becoming much more troublesome, and were striving to make their way across the mountains on foot. To add to the danger, snow had commenced to fall much earlier than usual in the High Sierra, making the passes more difficult every day, and threatening a complete blockade before the emigrants could get through. The emergency, great as it was, was met successfully by the organization of relief trains and the transportation of large quantities of supplies across the mountains. The work was largely in the hands of United States Army officers, with Major Rucker in command. In the face of great difficulties, he succeeded in bringing the last of the emigrant trains of 1849 through the snows before the route became impassable though some of the parties had already been three days without food when the government supplies arrived. Many of the companies which reached Salt Lake late in the summer of 1849, instead of completing their journey that year, remained until spring in the Mormon city. Much has been written of the treatment received by the gold seekers from Brigham Young's followers during this period, but the testimony is too nearly divided between good and ill for an authoritative conclusion to be reached. The Mormons certainly took advantage of the immigrants' needs to charge high prices, 75 cents a pound for meat, 50 cents a gallon for milk, $500 for a wagon were the prevailing rates. But later on, when the gold seekers reached the Sierra, they found their fellow Gentiles at least as skillful at profiteering as the Mormons. The story of the migration of 1850, except in detail, differs little from that of the preceding year. The spring months saw thousands of wagons filled with men, women, and children, household goods, food, and treasured possessions of every kind taking the westward way. Along the route, the drama of 1849 was reenacted. Cholera, scurvy, dysentery, accident, thirst, hunger, fatigue, Indian attack, quarrels, discouragement, and every other ill attacked the trains. Against these foes were set hope, ambition, steady determination, patience, humor, and the fighting spirit of the frontier. Here a train pauses in its slow progress toward the Pacific to bury one of its members. Another, within sight, stops a few brief hours while a woman gives birth to a child. Days of easy travel with abundance of food, grass for the animals, light-heartedness, music, and good cheer around the evening camp alternate with days of tragedy and unspeakable hardships. Again, in 1850, as in 1849, disaster threatened many of the immigrants who attempted to cross the Sierra late in the season. In September, the Humboldt route was crowded with trains, most of them in desperate straits because of loss of animals, sickness, or lack of food, while farther north along the Pitt River were other immigrants equally destitute and subject in addition to Indian depredations. Once more, relief parties were formed and supplies sent to the sufferers. Voluntary organizations in Stockton, San Francisco, Marysville, and other communities collected money with which to purchase food and dispatched pack trains across the mountains. Newspapers and individuals spread the appeal for funds, and money soon poured in from mining settlements and ranches as well as from the cities. The heart of all California was touched with that sympathy and liberality which have since become the proverbial heritage of the state. Perhaps the chiefest of the good Samaritans of this early day was William Waldo, a member of the Relief Committee of Sacramento. 
no man was more untiring in his efforts to rescue the threatened immigrants or so quick in his sympathies for their sufferings early in september he dispatched a letter from his camp on the humboldt where he had gone with supplies to the relief committee at sacramento an extract from this despatch will show better than any other description something of waldo's generosity and the desperate need he found among the trains Quote, should your committee wrote waldo still be unable to collect funds i then ask that the committee city council or some other body of men advance to the amount of eight or ten thousand dollars and forward the amount in flour and little articles for the sick to this point and to the summit for which i pledge my honor if i live to return where it can be legally done to set over all my right title and interest to real estate in sacramento city that has cost me ten thousand dollars this sum will send between twenty and twenty five thousand pounds of flour to the summit this in connection with the beef horses mules and dead stock that can be jerked before it putrefies will save ten thousand human beings from starvation a man can live very well upon half a pound of beef and a quarter of a pound of flour per day i again repeat that these people must be relieved or they must die and that by starvation can you believe that the destitution is so general that during an absence of six days from this station i found but two trains of which i could procure a piece of bread and a cup of coffee i have known a cup of soup containing not more than one spoonful of flour to sell for one dollar and the buyer considered himself fortunate to get it on those terms thanks to the efforts of waldo colonel ralston major sherman and others of like kind and the generous response of the people of california disaster was averted in eighteen fifty as it had been in eighteen forty nine aid was given not only to those on the central and northern routes but also to the equally unfortunate caravans coming by way of the gila one cannot picture the outcome if this help had been denied even so it is said fifteen hundred graves were counted between salt lake and sacramento along the truckee route alone of such magnitude was the toll paid in the great migration End of chapter seventeen